0: Welcome to the Deep Hire Podcast, where each episode we explore the worlds of recruiting and staffing, technology, business, and the roles we have within them. Hello everybody, today I am joined by David Florence. David Florence is one of my most valued guests. He has had such a varied and multifaceted career where he's found success in multiple different avenues and I'm really glad that he came on our podcast today and I enjoyed this conversation very much. We discuss a few things. We discuss building long-term, trusting, and transparent relationships with your clients as a retained recruiter and why that's important for businesses who are looking to have long-term success. We discuss transparency while negotiating and the differences between staffing and senior-level recruiting. So without further ado, here is David Florence. For our listeners, we're doing a second podcast because... We had some technical difficulties on the first time that we tried to do this around. So one more time, I have the privilege of talking with David David Florence, who really has been one of the more wise guests that I've had on. He's, you, you've had a, a career that is envious to me. I, I feel envy <laughs> when I just, um, you've done so many things successfully that it's, it's I admire you. and It's, it's great. Wow. So would you just run through that? for people, what you've done and like the various, sure. yeah.
1: Well, I fake it very well. So thanks for the introduction and no pressure at all on me. I uh, started my career out actually involved with technology. I have several relatives who are famous in technology and that my brother created Excel at Microsoft and my cousin created Outlook and sold his company to Microsoft. So as a kid, I was always involved with technology from the time, I was developing code in in high school, college, and then uh, working for computer stores. And then I ended up owning computer stores in the early days of my career. Uh, I sold those off, and I became an executive recruiter because I didn't know what else to do. I had uh, built a business up, sold it, and tried to decide what I was going to do. So this is in the dark ages when we had that wonderful technology of three-by-five cards, bins to hold them in, and a fax machine. And uh, that's how we communicated with the telephone and fax machine and 3x5 cards. We used to take a resume that was faxed to us and stamp the company name on the resume and then fax it to someone else. It was extremely high tech. (laughs) And uh, and it was even funnier, people who are old like I am will know that we used to batch process these resumes after 12 o'clock at night because the long distance rates at that time were based upon time of day and duration of call. So, those who use cell phones have no idea. It used to cost like 25 cents a minute and sometimes even more during the day. So, you used to do all your faxing at night. So, you either put them in the machine and set it up or you'd get up at 12 o'clock and fax for an hour, then go back to sleep. So, these were the funny days of of the technology. I ended up, during one of the recessions that occurred, going back and getting my MBA and uh, focusing on getting myself a job. So, I actually recruited myself to one of my clients and candidates from prior life after my MBA, ended up that uh, the company was based in Utah and it was very much a different culture than myself growing up in Beverly Hills and it wasn't a good fit. So culture is an extremely important part about search that I did not know at that point in my life how important it was. Mm -hmm. Uh, So then I gravitated towards working for other tech firms, including Motorola Sun Microsystems and Oracle, helping develop products and services, and flying around the world talking about products and services. I became a dot-com executive in early 2000s, and that was really fantastic for about an hour and a half, where <laughs> stock prices were crazy, and we were all checking our portfolios. And then as a, an executive, you can't sell your stock unless it's in tiny little windows. And of course, during that tiny little window, my stock price demolished from about $100 a share to $5 a share. Oh, my God. So I didn't have to deal with any hiding of money since I didn't make any money on the stock. So uh, that was a, one of my fatal flaws. Damn. Then I ended up becoming a consultant to technology companies for another several years, including opening up one of my businesses. was I created... Was a home theater and a technology company to work for. Beverly Hills, Bel Air, Santa Monica, Brentwood, billionaires and millionaires to set up their office and home computer systems
0: mm. and home
1: theaters. And that was extremely lucrative and extremely fun. Today I was talking to an executive at LG. We were comparing the notes for the old days versus today and how much money you could make selling a home theater in that era versus today, and it's orders of magnitude difference. Uh, it's, uh, the shipping cost today is more than the profit that you make on, a, on a selling a system. Back then, we used to measure it in tens of thousands of dollars profit. So uh, Wow. Those were the, the golden days. Yes, we used to buy flat panel monitors for $5,000 and sell them for $10,000 wow. many times a week. Wow. And uh, not anymore. Uh, you now buy a flat panel for $300. And it costs the Best Buy $297 to buy. Oh <laughs> so there's gosh. no margin whatsoever in this stuff.
0: Because technology so, uh, is so much cheaper now.
1: It's commoditized. And lots, lots of, as a business professor as well, what I've, I've been doing for years as well, companies have become too quick to drop price. And with Amazon as a distribution channel, it's really customer-focused. All the power is in the customer's hands. There's too much commoditization, not enough innovation, and therefore you can buy a 4K flat panel for what? The cost of a Cracker Jack box? uh, A few hundred dollars as opposed to what it should be. Not that I have any animosity towards the price points these days. So basically, as you can tell, I've done a lot of technology in my background. After doing these businesses, I ended up getting recruited by a recruiting firm. But they ended up saying, you know, why don't you get back into recruiting? And so instead of taking a job that they recommended me to, I ended up joining a boutique executive search firm out of North Carolina called Millennium Search. Ran the West Coast for them for a few years, focusing on technology. That company was multi-phased in that There were a few recruiters that did contingency and a few recruiters that did retained. I tended to do the retained type searches, a little bit more engaged, a little bit more time involved, and a little higher end searches. Mm -hmm. And so I was recruiting C-suite executives for technology firms. From there... I switched into working for one of the largest retained executive search firms in the world, Chase International, where I was recruited by the founder of the company in the Los Angeles office. They have 76 offices in 45 countries. Wow. And so I focused a great deal on technology doing retained searches around the world for several years. But I decided that I didn't want to be pigeonholed just retained. And the model was 100% what you kill. And it's tough to budget your life when you're 100% eat what you kill, even with great times come less great times. And it's harder to budget and more stressful for me personally.
0: Eat what for you others, kill, meaning whatever you
1: Meaning 100% commission. Okay. No, no, no benefits, no bonuses, no nothing, just mm-hmm. full value based upon performance. Mm-hmm. And it can be challenging. A company just pays for LinkedIn recruiter and business cards. I rented my own office, I did all the BD, all myself. So Mm -hmm. I received a large percentage of each deal, but there's a lot of cash outflow and sometimes it could be poor inflow, so it could be problematic. Mm -hmm. So recently, I joined a firm in New York, one of the larger executive search firms in the area on Long Island called Executive Alliance. And Executive Alliance is both what's called a staffing firm and an executive search firm. We do individual contributors and entry level positions all the way up to board and C-suite. I tend to be at the higher end of the value chain there in terms of director and above retained searches, although I'll work for food, and so (laughs) I will not turn down any assignment. And I have a team of folks that I can rely on and work on for those non-executive roles. And I'm involved with the NACD, the National Association of Corporate Directors, as well as other organizations that are focused on strategy as opposed to operations. In addition, as I mentioned, I've been a professor for six years. Now that I've moved to New York, I'm going to be reengaging in academia. But I've taught at the graduate level at such schools as USC, UC Santa Barbara, Pepperdine University, Cal State Northridge, teaching some strategy, new venture management, and a myriad of marketing courses, including market research, data analytics, branding, intro to marketing and advanced marketing classes of consumer behavior and about applications of marketing. So that gives me a fairly unique perspective as a recruiter. Mm-hmm. I've done my undergraduate math and psychology, my PhD work in engineering and my MBA. And so I'm a little different than a typical recruiter based upon my academic and business focus. I use that as a mechanism to win trust And use my subject matter expertise to garner favor with candidates and clients as well.
0: One question I have after listening to all of those things, they're so varied and you have been truly successful in many different facets. So I want to know, do you have a sense of what it is that drives you?
1: That's a great question. I ask that of my candidates all the time. I actually (laughs) send out a set of questions, which I call my six W's, the who, what, when, where, why, and how of my candidates. And uh, one of those questions is what drives you, basically? Mm. I'm interested in innovation and watching companies grow. And so I'm more interested in multifaceted searches. The more interesting and senior level, the more I get excited about. It. Hence the love of board and retained executive searches. My desire is to actually help a company grow and blossom and increase sales, increase value and increase innovation. And so I use human capital as one of the linchpins to deliver that to clients. Mm -hmm. So it's a little different than staffing. The way I see staffing is you're generally doing either round peg, round hole, or square peg, square hole of not necessarily commoditized, but people that aren't necessarily key producers or key linchpins of the organization. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just more commoditized. For me, the intellectual pursuit I like is the more nuanced and problematic search, especially at the senior level where you're very nuanced in looking for something in business intelligence or data technology or architecture or business development that has a very specific and nuanced set of skills as well as important soft skills, especially in a small-cap, mid-cap company where leadership and my candidates will be working hand-in-hand And therefore, such things as vision, value, mission, and integrity are integral into the decision-making to bring on an individual.
0: Yeah, that sounds so genuinely interesting to be a part of the process of hiring somebody with you have to just pay attention to so many different things. And I know we've talked about this in the past, but even getting down to relying on your gut Mm -hmm. as a deciding factor for who's right for these positions, because they're not always technical skills you know, the square pegs, square holes for staffing agencies. It's like, if the only thing you're going to be doing is designing mm-hmm. websites, then, you know, you don't need to have that, those abilities that C-suite and board positions need. That
1: is really the crux of the differentiation. I like it that it's alligators and crocodiles. We're both executive search. I would liken to either crocodile or alligator. And then the the staffing is more the reverse or the opposite. And there are similarities, but there are differences. When you're looking for a web developer or a salesperson or a engineer, there are specific sets of hard skills. Of course, you want someone who can interact with the organization and not going to swear at when they're on cram or, or, or wear pajamas to work. But in lieu of that, it's really the hard skills that are the key contributor to the job. As you move up the value chain of an organization towards the board and the C-suite, it's less for the hard skills and much more the soft skills. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting as a recruiter, and don't tell this to your audience, so shh, turn your, cover your ears, it's actually easier to hire a CEO than it is a manager because generally, and everyone, again, cover your ears, it's, it's, you're really looking for soft skills. Most of the hard skills are already established because of their background. Mm-hmm. So now you're just aligning soft skills, so it's an easier search. Mm-hmm. What's funny is the mid-manager level searches are the difficult ones like director and sometimes AVPs because you have to do both hard skills and soft skills. You're almost doing two searches at once.
0: Right, right.
1: And another secret is we charge way too much for senior level executive hiring. (laughs) So you can make, you know, in the hundreds of thousands of dollars for fee, Mm -hmm. and that's basically should be criminal, but I'll take that money. Yeah. So it's usually an easy search. It's much more fun. And you end up spending much more of the time chatting and learning about their vision, values, and style mm-hmm. than you do about their what they've done in their technical prowess. Right. And so, um, as I said, it's much more fun. I've interviewed senior-level candidates for hours at a time while we're watching a football game. We're just shooting the breeze for hours mm-hmm. just talking about vision and goals and aspiration and family life, because all of that is consequential to making a move physically or materially in terms of a job change. And I don't think many recruiters would think that that would be a normal thing to spend three hours shooting the breeze during a football game when you're looking for a project manager. And so it's just a very different style of search.
0: It's a very attractive style from the way you've described it.
1: It can be. It can be very challenging, of course, because it takes a lot of energy. And by the time you groom the individual, and if there's a either a uh, an offer not made or an offer made and rescinded or, or or not accepted, it's a lot of energy. So you you know you're it's very few people make it to the end of that search because there may be five people who have the capability in the world mm-hmm. that would match the need as opposed to a a commoditized position. Mm. So you spend a lot of time interviewing, discussing, evaluating, and and debating the value of the individual. Plus, many times it's a committee or a board or something that's evaluating. so you get a lot of stakeholders in the decision. Now, the beauty of retained search, of course, is that you get paid regardless of outcome. And so there are, just for those who do not know, there are three types of retained searches. There is one that what I consider a true retained search and that's one where you're paid regardless of outcome. Typically, you're paid a third of your fee up front on day zero, a third of the fee on day 30, and a third of the fee on day 60, regardless of outcome. Then there's another model of retained search where you're paid on percentage of completion or a task-based model where you get fee at the beginning, a third of the fee at the beginning, a third of the fee based upon some level of performance like submitting five quality candidates or something along those lines, and then paid upon the completion of the search. And there's hybrids where what we call ret- contingency or contained searches where hybrids of those type of things. Mm-hmm. But a true retained executive search is you're paid regardless of outcome. And firms like we call the Shrek firms, uh, Spencer Stewart, Heydrich Struggles, Egon Zender, uh, Russell Reynolds, and Corn Ferry, and Shrek, Generally are great at getting the search, but they don't always have to perform and they're still paid. Mm -hmm. In addition, many of these firms charge an administrative fee of 10 to 20% of the fee, as well as all incidentals. So it becomes an extremely lucrative model. And so we, we joke that these firms are great at getting the search. And many times, like a law firm, the partner will come out and work with a client, bring it back to the office, and then the junior fresh out will work on this search and so many a time you get the cufflings and cigar guy coming out and then you're dealing with the tennis shoe and, and flip or flip-flops person on the back end not understanding or realizing that that's gone off to a junior associate right so that's the little known secret of lots of retained search firms
0: mm, well that's one way to do it it's it's less work for more money so if people are looking where, for that you know
1: well, it's interesting. When In retained search, the candidate is not important. It's the client that is important. So it's all biz dev all the time. The search is almost a kind of necessary evil to many search firms. I don't agree with that philosophy myself. But many of the search firms, it's all business development. Just get the deal, and then we'll either hire someone to find it, outsource it, whatever, to get the candidates. Mm-hmm. The candidates are widgets. To me as a professional uh, human capital consultant, and I use the term consultant, is that it's a marriage between the client, the candidate. It should be a two-way solution, of win-win, and it's a three-dimensional puzzle to align those things. And so I look at it a little differently than others.
0: Well, I think that's a good way of looking at it, and uh, a good analogy that I feel like applies to good recruiters, and in your situation, good retained recruiters, is you guys are negotiators between two Correct. separate parties. So I, I want to dive into that. What, what are some of the pillars of, of successful negotiation from your point of view?
1: I think transparency is a key. So I think that there are three key components to great recruiting, in at least my mind. Being transparent or what I call truthful, and then having subject matter expertise, knowledge, and wisdom. So that when you align on both hard skills and soft skills, then you move to dollar negotiation, title negotiation, and many times KPI or performance evaluation as part of the onboarding process or part of the contractual component of an executive. Because a lot of the income is not necessarily cash flow, straight compensation. It's based upon performance or their bonus commission or equity. And so therefore... It's very incumbent upon the recruiter to act as a true consultant and negotiate through the process and be a true, um, a true mitigator between the two sources, so that you're acting as kind of an agent, as in a real estate transaction, an agent for both parties, and you have a fiduciary responsibility to both. Yeah. Clearly, the payment is made by the client, so you're ultimately at the end of the day. That's your food share responsibility, but mm-hmm. in order to keep high quality and um, some level of professionalism, you do have to have some food share responsibility to the candidate as well.
0: Definitely, I could really see if I am a company that is going to be around for a long time, and there's going to be ebbs and flows of the types of roles that I need fit, and the culture might shift, and so the C-suite positions might need to change, like with their values and how they align with the vision of my company. I could really see taking a long-term perspective the importance of having one company that I go to for all mm-hmm. of my candidates and and mm-hmm. that's that's why maybe it that's why when you said that it matters more so the 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 recruiter to client relationship that's why it makes so much sense it's like you are my trusted
1: recruiter mm-hmm. partner yeah we're, we're a partner a really good recruiter is a partner And sometimes we actually make comments that, you know, you don't need this role or let's integrate it into something else. Because again, you're paying me a large fee for my expert advice, not just the search component, but a real recruiter, in my opinion, creates the job specification or job profile, not just a job spec or a a job posting, but really creates something. We create generally a description of the company, description of any problems or issues, not just you know, negative or positive, but why this role is, is in existence, and then the role in detail, not just a one page with a bunch of bullets that looks like a form off of uh, LinkedIn or a zip recruiter. Mm-hmm. So that's part of the construction is sitting down with the firm Talking through the needs assessment, why the position's open, how is this going to work? As I like to call it, my six W's, the who, what, when, where, why, and how. Mm-hmm. We tell a story. We get buy-in on that story from the decision makers and all the stakeholders of the uh, position. Then we go out to the marketplace. What I tend to do is do what I call a benchmark set of candidates. So I may either speak to those candidates. They may be prior candidates I've, I've worked with in my ATS ones that I find through research and I show them to the clients with a, what I generally do is I create a one pager for each candidate generally with a picture although some companies don't want a picture for bias with the, what, what the real advanced, advantages of the candidate are, what the wins are, why are they interesting, why are they important, what do they do, their educational background, some construct of their, of their compensation desires. And put those five of those together in a benchmark set. Because before I present a candidate to a client, I don't really know what they want. We've talked for hours. We've created documents. But until I get feedback on a real person, it's all abstract. Mm -hmm. So that five candidates could be ten, but generally around five. Gives me feedback. I ask what you like, didn't like, and what you don't see. And from there, I can now really tune my focus on search to the next set of real candidates. And many a time, I'm lucky or fortuitous, and one of the benchmark candidates I provided is actually either a finalist or, or a uh, hired employee. So sometimes I've been very lucky. Mm-hmm. But it's it's a, it's a it's an experiment. It's a process. It is not a simple, to me, it's throwing resumes against the wall and hoping something sticks.
0: Definitely. I um, want to close with some questions that I have been inspired from the Tim Ferriss show. I recently downloaded one of his books and he's a very successful podcast interviewer and, and they're off topic of recruiting and staffing, <laughs> but, but I think they'll be uh will be rapid fire. They'll be pretty, pretty light. So I'm going to ask two questions. And the first one is what purchase of $100 or less has most positively impacted your life in the last six months?
1: Hmm, what purchase less than? $100. Well, I am an audiophile and technology geek, so probably one of my myriads of headphones that allows me to enjoy myself on the way to work or on the way walking, something along those lines, so it relaxes me. Or I could actually say, you know what, I'll say it, one of my Amazon appliances, which is similar. So, Amazon, uh, let's call it under $100 on discount, the Amazon. Echo Show 8.
0: Okay. Yeah. Do you do you use that for shopping needs or music <laughs> or notes? Yes. 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 Nice. Yeah. They're they're amazingly useful. My my roommate has a Google Home and mm-hmm. gen, genuinely impressive the, its ability to answer exactly the questions that you ask it.
1: Well, I am such a nerd that I have Google Home and Echo in each of my rooms.
0: Wow. Oh, yeah, <laughs> wow a smart home are you, are you are you it truly
1: is nice that's um, my very front cool. door my videos my everything is tied into uh the uh both echo and google
0: that's cool smart homes are real cool and they they're just going to keep getting cooler so the future is going to be pretty exciting i think <laughs> mm-hmm. all right and last question is what book have you given most as a gift to other people throughout your lifetime
1: that's a great question. I'm going to probably turn it around and say it's for students It will be a marketing textbook or something like Who Moved My Cheese or The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People mm-hmm. or Kotler's Marketing Textbook. Those are probably the three and the, crossing the chasm earlier in my career. So those type of books. Nice. Uh, I, I myself am into uh, – Politics and history. So I read a lot of biographies of great leaders and great people, but I generally don't give those as gifts because people will be bored senseless.
0: <laughs> Have you always been that way?
1: I'm a nerd through and through.
0: Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to another Deep Hire podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. As always, if you or anybody else on your team thinks that you might be a good fit as a guest on our podcast, feel free to reach out on deephire.com. Have a great day. We love you. Love, Matt and the
1: Deep Hire team.